0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 164 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Fighting Spirit, an interview with Lindsay Ruiz. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm
1: Matt Zabatello.
0: Matt, this is a beautiful story. We have this traditional immigrant story where we have a woman who immigrated from Venezuela. She had some challenges in her family. And what she did is she went and pulled herself up by her bootstraps. She went to a local library and learned how to speak English. She then went to a local community college and took some free courses so that she could learn about the American educational system. She then pivoted over and got her master's degree from a major university. And now she is weeks away from getting her PhD. Now, this woman also got Lyme disease, but the kind of resourcefulness that she has shown during the entire time of her life and during this entire immigrant experience is something that she used to serve her here. She contacted us at the end of last year, right after she was diagnosed with Lyme disease, and she got a lot of information from us and then acted on that information, and now she's having a very good outcome. Rich, Lindsay saw over 20
1: doctors in a one-year period until she finally saw her dog's vet who recommended she might have Lyme disease. She then followed up with a therapist who said, I don't think you're crazy. Let me see your lab work, who then found she had a positive Lyme test from a prior doctor. At that point, she went to a naturopath, had an hygienics test, and got a confirmation of Lyme disease. She's only been in treatment for four months with the brilliant Dr. Brownbush, but she's doing so much better
0: already after a four-month window. So Matt, this is really a beautiful story on a number of different levels, but I think what's most important about this story is this is a model that others should be using to heal on their Lyme disease journey. It's this kind of resourcefulness that Lindsay has shown during her entire life that's allowed her to be successful on her Lyme disease journey, and this is the type of success story that others should be modeled. So without further ado, I am happy to introduce the soon-to-be Dr. Lindsay Ruiz to the Tick Boot Camp community. Hey, Lindsay, or should I say soon-to-be Dr. Ruiz, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Rich. I'm very excited to be here. We're really excited to have you, too. I mean, this is a podcast that has been a long time coming. Uh, For our listeners, I want them to know that we are big fans of soon-to-be Dr. Aweeds. We had an opportunity to have a long conversation in the recent past, and uh, we've just been really, really excited about having Lindsay on our podcast. So, Lindsay, can you share with our listeners where you currently live?
2: So, I live in North Carolina, specifically in the Charlotte area.
0: And uh, where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in Venezuela. That's where you get in my accent from. I was born in a very, very small town called La Victoria, which is like an hour away from the capital. And I moved to the United
0: States in 2001. And how old were you when you moved to the U.S.? 24. So what was the first 24 years of your life like? Can you share with us what it was like growing up in Venezuela and specifically what your educational experience was like?
2: Yeah, so my my life in Venezuela, my childhood was a little bit um, exciting and complicated at the same time. I was born in a family of single mothers. Um, I myself don't know my bio- biological father, but that pretty much set the foundation for my childhood in terms of, um, expectations of myself and, you know, how you should, supposed to be understanding life. And, um, I pretty much went through, you know, what other child goes through elementary school and high school. And then I also completed my undergrad, uh, education in Venezuela. I have, um, BA from an undergrad perspective. I have a BA in communications with concentration in marketing and advertising, Um, I started elementary school when I was five years old so I'm an early learner and I graduated from high school when I was early 16 went straight into college and I finished my undergrad when I was 19 years old.
0: So let's let's tie up your educational experience because I have introduced you as soon to be Dr. Ruiz can you talk (laughs) about your education since you graduated with your BA in Venezuela?
2: Yeah, well, when I finished my undergrad, I went straight into the professional field. So I worked in advertising and marketing in Venezuela since I was 19 until the moment I moved to the U.S. at 24. Um, Coming to the U.S., I kind of put my marketing career on standby, and I started from scratch pretty much. Uh, I worked in operational capacities in the healthcare industry, but that took me to A little bit of a plateau from my career perspective, where I recognized that I wanted to lead people, manage enterprises, and do all this big work, but I didn't have the background for that. And the things I was doing were more intuitive than they were, you know, from an intelligent perspective. And uh, I decided to complete a business coaching program at NC State University through the Coaching Institute when I was probably in 2007, I think it it was. And uh, my hope for that program is that I was going to become just a great leader, a great manager. Um, And instead I found what is not my passion, uh, which is organization development and the ability to drive a complex change within large scale organizations. Um, So I decided to put myself through a master's program back in 2009 after I finished this coaching program. And that initiated my career again from scratch on a blank slate. Um, I finished my master's when in, in 2011. I was already working in corporate America. I've been doing that ever since um, up until now. And in 2017, I had the, I don't know if it was the great idea or the crazy idea to say, well, why don't we just go for, for, for a doctorate degree? And um, that's what I'm finishing right now.
0: And uh, can you share with all listeners when you expect to complete your uh, PhD?
2: Um, I'm a couple of months in to be done after four long years.
0: <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. So let me talk to you a little bit about ticks and Lyme disease at this stage. So you are um, one of the most educated people in this country. You've been educated in two different countries and you're about to um, complete a PhD. What did you know about ticks and tick diseases prior to getting sick?
2: Close to nothing. Um, I have to say that you kind of hear here and there that you've got to stay away from ticks, but I did not have at all an informed perspective of anything whatsoever.
0: Let's, let's dig into that a little bit. So during the course of the time that you were educated in Venezuela, all the way through your undergraduate degree. Did you know anything about ticks, anything about tick diseases and what you could do to protect yourself from tick diseases? Nothing. You now came to the US and you're about to finish the highest level of education that you can in the US. You have a master's degree and you're months away from a PhD. What did you learn about ticks and tick diseases that would allow you to protect yourself from getting Lyme disease?
2: I did not know nothing in my education that I have today about it. Is as is a result of having been one of the now statistics okay. in the states.
0: So, so let's talk a little bit about you know what your dreams were and what your goals were when you were in Venezuela before you came to the U.S. I, I'm assuming because you you were studying marketing and communications that you envisioned yourself working in the advertising arena.
2: I did. Um, I had the the, the fortune that um, my uncle on my mother's side, um, it's in the advertising industry. It was at the time, and he gave me an opportunity to kick off my career on the right track. Um, my dream was to, you know, I've never had like a commercial ambition myself, but I always want to be in the middle of where I can be helpful to people, where I can understand what's going on, where I can ask white questions and come up with ideas. And um, I'm naturally very creative. Like my right brain is really what guides my life. And I think he saw that talent in me and not having the the early education on it. He put me in the right track to start figuring out what my dreams were from a career standpoint. Um, I, was very successful from a very early age. I moved through a couple of advertising agencies in Caracas um, where I just had very privileged opportunities to work with executives and and people who were, you know, really important in in, in, um, commercial accounts in the country at the time. And uh, I remember when I decided to move to the U.S. in my second employment before I moved here, the president of the agency pulled me into his office and told me that I was crazy, that I was messing up my career, that you have such a future in this. What are you doing? Um, so I think that my dreams were always framed around what is the next big thing? How, how can I overachieve more? How can I expand my perspective on things more? Where can I learn better? Um, but always with the purpose of being a good impact in the world and the people around me. Um, I just don't think I had a very structured idea of what that would look like. And I will always be inquisitive to figure that out in my next step. And I still am that way. I
0: haven't changed too much. <laughs> so talk to us about your immigration to the U.S. and what <laughs> type of work you were doing when you arrived uh, to the U.S.
2: Um, So my, I came to the U.S. on, it it was August 16, 2001, so right before 9-11. I was, like I mentioned, working in this, you know, very important advertising agency. I had a couple of big accounts that I was leading from a um, creative direction point of view. And I pretty much came here with 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 the hope to build a family. I came following who was at the time my pretty much college heart and in my relationship of a long time. And then we decided to marry. So I decided to do everything on standby and come here pursuing a different family future and a, a different life pretty much. Um, so yeah, I'll stop there. I know you have a follow-up question. So, the, so, like,
0: so talk to us about what your experience was like here in the US and how you ultimately pivoted from... This vision of having a traditional family to a more career oriented path.
2: Oh, wow. So I'm gonna have to go back a little bit memory lane because I don't think my ambition for a career ever died. Okay. I think my I told you I came from a family of single mothers, not really a structured normal family like most people may have. And that was some longing. Um hope more than a desire like I always had in my mind the idea the idea of you know I want to I want to build my own safe split you know safe place my own home and so at the moment when I took the step to emigrate here because my my partner at the time had the chance to come here and start a business and do a lot of things um, it was more important for me to take the opportunity to to you know, build that other part of my dream, um, just give it a shot and then figured out that my career could be put on hold because I could pick it up at any point. What I didn't realize at the time, and I was probably too naive at 24 to even consider any of the, the upcoming challenges, was the life here as an immigrant, um, how complicated it was going to be to... Um, to put myself to, to put my life back together from a career standpoint to learn the language to get legal status to work here i came here as a dependent so i could leave but i couldn't work um so going to school again was not in the picture at all because without knowing the language how can you go to school or have those kinds of dreams so I started little by little picking up the pieces of my professional, you know, ambitions. I I learned English on my own, so I would visit I would visit libraries and take out at the time where were like cassette type, um, you know, self study learning classes, and I have my own notebooks and stuff. And um, then uh, once I got my foundation on the language, then. Um, I would attend like community college classes that were for free, like th- th- those that are given at night. And, um, I did that for like two years. And then obviously you go out to the supermarket and you go out into, you know, engagements with people and you make a lot of mistakes. And I have to overcome my fear or ridicule being an overachiever myself and having come from an, an experience where you know, I was already being very successful professionally, it was a very big shift in, in shock for me. Uh, and in parallel, just trying to figure out how to be a wife and how to be a housekeeper, which was not, it's not in my wheelhouse at all. But I tried. And um, yeah, just it was just a whole complete renewal of who I was and finding myself and figuring out what was important, what was not. But the idea of My career, my development, my self-actualization was always there. I just had to start from a different corner than what I had expected.
0: So now after you built this foundation, both uh, learning the language and developing a basic um, uh, educational foundation uh, after learning English, what caused you to pivot over to organizational development rather than communications and advertising?
2: I think it's, it's, it's been, um, it's been just following the door that opens. It hasn't been a, a very logical journey, Rich, to be honest with you and your audience. Um, I'm more of a, you know, let's see what's the next thing for me and how that fits into the picture and then connect the dots looking backwards. Um, believe it or not, as I am discovering all, all these new experiences and where it's leading me, I, there are a lot of essential connections between being an advertising and marketing, being a, a consumer behavioral, right, practitioner of a sense with being a behavioral practitioner of change within a corporate setting. Um, and there are a lot of um, tools and techniques and, um, and things that you do to, to find out what makes people tick and what, what are their motivations and what are their vulnerabilities and how do you communicate with them and how do you help them find themselves in the environment of change that are very similar with my marketing and advertising background. So it's been kind of a foundation over a foundation that are, is just building up naturally. Um, but the reason I came to organization development, it was pretty much on a synchronicity um, experience as well. When I finished my coaching degree, my, country, my coaching certification, I learned that there is this field called OD, or organization development, and when I looked into what it was about, um, it really was everything that I just knew I wanted to do, I just didn't know it cognitively. And so it's a systemic um, understanding of what happens inside of organizations, the dynamics, how people work together productively, how they don't, uh, the structural pieces of an organization that make change successful or not. And... Um, The models and theories and philosophies that play into understanding changing environments. Um, And it's everything that failed, just like a fish in water. And I just went through it.
0: So now let's talk about when you first started to to show the symptoms of what you now know to be your tick disease. When did these symptoms first present to you?
2: That is a more recent experience, like fast forwarding to last year. Um in January of 2020 I start feeling very depersonalized with myself I start noticing that I'm gaining weight at a fast speed that it was not normal for my metabolism and the way that I am physically um I start noticing that my I have chest pain and air hunger And I have some previous experiences, like in 2015, I I went in cardiac arrest due to a pulmonary embolism. And uh, that's a whole nother story. But I bring that sort of trauma with me. So every time, you know, when I started feeling like chest pain and those things, I was like, oh my gosh, I need to figure out what is this. And at the time, I did not know this, but I did have a, 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 a rash on my left leg and I attributed that to something called pleva, P-L-E-V-E, which is an autoimmune disease similar to psoriasis, which I had also had my entire life. And I did not pay attention to it, but because of these other symptoms, I went to my first primary care visit and I exposed all of these to this doctor. And he pretty much ignored my rash. And when I told him all my other symptoms, he thought that my chest pain was, uh, was caused by um, PTSD from the cardiac arrest experience in the past. And he thought that my weight gain was uh, an issue of uh, being premenopausal with my age. And uh, he put me through some, you know, blood work and things of that nature, which obviously as probably all your audience to say, it came back normal. And then we went, we started going this this rabbit hole of you have anxiety disorders and panic attacks and all that. And um, there's more to that, but that's kind of how it
0: started. So let's talk about the depersonalization. Um, What is that? And had you ever felt that prior to January of 2020?
2: I have felt that once when I was coming out of my... 20-year-long marriage, and I was realizing that a lot of my experience there and my way to cope with that had to do with me sort of um, seeing myself somewhat as an object from the from from like out-of-body experiences. I hadn't hung up through it for a long time until I started dealing with figuring out what was wrong with my body. So it was, it was an, um, a familiar way to cope, but I did not make the connection at the time.
0: Okay. So now you went to your first doctor, you had all of what you now know to be classic Lyme disease symptoms, and you give the doctor all of these different pieces of the Lyme disease symptoms that you were feeling, and he misdiagnosed you. What did you do from there?
2: I came back to him. Uh, about two months later, when things just really started to get worse, um, he continued to make more formal documentation that I was dealing with a mental illness. Uh, he would put in his medical notes that I was um, an anxiety, like a, a severe anxiety disordered person. He would start documenting things like like when I would push back and say no, that is not the issue. This is physical. We need to figure more out. Um, he will come back and say, well, not only do I think you have anxiety, but I think you're dealing with PTSD. Um, so we started that back and forth, um, between him and I, and then I decided to take it upon myself to figure out what to do. And, um, I, Went to different specialists. I think I've seen about 20 doctors, including a vet, like my dog's veterinarian. (laughs) And that's funny, but that was probably one of the most helpful visits I've ever had.
0: (laughs) How sad it is, right?
2: (laughs) We'll talk about that. Um, But yeah, I saw, you know, I started with rheumatology, I saw neurologists, I saw an ENT because I started feeling, you know, ringing in my ears and pain. Um, I saw, um, I think I put on your list, the, the list of people that I saw, but it was like every potential special specialization that you could think of because of the symptoms being so random and so spread out. And I had no idea. And then this kind of happened in the middle of the COVID pandemic being declared. So I was, you know, secluded in my house with all these symptoms in in my body and and over awareness and um, not knowing if I'm dying of COVID or I'm having some, you know, heart attack that I'm not aware of and um, I'll stop here there's more, but that's kind of how it started.
0: So I want to take you back. I appreciate you stopping there because I want to take you back to the first doctor and, um, and the exchange that you were having with this doctor, where you were telling the doctor that you were physically sick. You knew you were physically sick, but he kept telling you that you were emotionally uh, sick. How did that make you feel?
2: Oh my gosh. I was very angry with this doctor. Um, I think at the time when I started dealing with him, I hadn't gone through the whole rabbit hole yet. I was still very aware and and somewhat strong in my conviction and my experience. Um, I started telling him that he, like I had to end up educating him on what it was like to be a a female Hispanic immigrant patient. And that every time he wrote down in his notes that I had anxiety and that I had all kinds of whatever psychological illnesses he thought I had, that that was creating me additional problems. Because when I went to the different other doctors, or if I went to visit the ER, the first thing they asked was, let me see your primary care doctor's notes. And once they see that documented, obviously the first thing they think is, well, your doctor said you have anxiety, why don't you see a psychiatrist? And um, I had a, the last time I saw him and actually documented it in my file in the hospital, um, I told him that he needed to stop and that he needed to reverse whatever he was writing that did not have an accurate evidence-based diagnosis and uh, if he really did think that I had a mental illness, that he had to refer me to the appropriate specialist before he was writing an accurate diagnosis of my condition. Um, obviously, I never went back to see him,
0: but that's a baseline for a lot more. Yes. So let, let's, let's, let's take another step back, and that is um, you, you wanted to point out to this doctor that you are going to face challenges because of your immigrant experience, your gender and your place of national origin were going to have an impact on you being diagnosed properly. Can you explain to us why you believe that that experience was something this doctor was not taking into account to properly diagnose and treat you?
2: Well, it all has to do with um, the experience on the other side. So this doctor was a, a, a white American man. Um, I am a, you know, forty-three year old at the time, Hispanic woman. I don't, I don't walk around wearing my credentials and my doctorates and anything like that. I just show up the way I look and the way I talk with my accent. And there is a bias around. People who speak with an accent, women who are typically considered as emotional and attention seekers, not only in the medical field, but in general. um, There is a stigma around women that push back and women that challenge authority. And I am aware of that from an educational standpoint, also for the work that I do. But in in our interaction, he doesn't have a piece of history about me. My way to use my intellect to inform my relationship with this doctor, there was a lot of anger as well. So I did not have the time or the opportunity to to educate him and bring bring him to my challenges. I just had the time to say, you got to stop. This is not working. Everywhere I go, I'm being judged by the way I look and the way I talk. And obviously, I was feeling more and more and more deteriorated. So I didn't look sleek and professional. I just looked like a sick person. And um, that hindered me from having, you know, mature conversations with doctor. I was just dying for help. And I was just thirsty of being heard and being understood. And I could not find that for a long
0: time. So now I'm going to ask you to put on your organizational development hat. You're now walking into an organization whose job it is to diagnose and treat you, you are walking in, looking and sounding the way you do, your gender, your place of national origin, and the accent that you speak with. How did that organization fail you and what could you have done so that perhaps you could have gotten a better outcome from this failing organization?
2: Well, that's a a big question. Let me try to compartmentalize it. Um, I think as an individual, I was failed in the very basic principle of being listened to. Um, I was failed at the level of professional expertise where the doctor, you are thinking is wanting to inquire and is wanting to investigate and is wanting to take your case and the data you're giving them as a patient and do the due diligence to connect the dots for you and provide you with a recommendation with a diagnosis that is as accurate as possible. Um, I think that they failed me as a patient from the perspective that um, they hold a position of authority of a sense. Right? You welcome me as a future doctor. Like, I take my professional privilege very seriously. And I think they did not. I think that it was handpicked what to believe of my testimony and what not. And um, I think that they failed themselves from an ethical standpoint to at least give me the opportunity to be supported, to be heard. And to be given the time that I needed to figure this out as soon as possible so I didn't have to go into a massive, um, you know, um, breakout of symptoms and, 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 and debilitation over time.
0: So now we've interviewed many women on our podcasts, and it's become pretty clear to us that women are treated very differently in the medical profession than men are treated. Talk to us about how you walked into this failing organizational experience, knowing that women are going to be treated differently. And how did that impact you when you ended that experience with the first doctor?
2: Well, this is the part that is mind blowing to me um, for myself, my own realization. So when you are in a position of vulnerability in the way that I was physically ill, mentally confused, we're going through a pandemic, everything is just blending. Um, I, my, I could not use my intellect and my education and everything that I know and everything that I've done to support me. Uh, that All of that went into a black box somewhere and all there was is this person who is desperate for answers and this person who, is desperate for finding somebody, one person that could take the time to listen to me. Um, I think that if I relate that to what happens in organizations and what happens to women in general in organizations, you can apply that to a lot of circumstances and the experience will be the same, I think, it happens to everybody, I don't want to genderize it, but I think that when women in particular are themselves in positions of vulnerability where the rest of the world don't listen to what you're going through, you you forget all your coping skills, you forget all that you know. You just know that you you're desperate for somebody that can recognize how gender plays a role in the dynamic and that you need to find allies such as yourselves here that can take a step back and say, wait a minute, I can see this from the outside. Yeah, this is what's happening. Let me push you through. Let me give you some kind of advocacy. And I did not have that throughout the whole process. So um, I think I was in a very unique situation
0: there to, to be able to be effective. So let's talk about the impact that the failure to listen to you had on your already desperate situation, because one of the questions that we're asked all the time is, why do we largely have women as guests on our podcast? And that's something that we've discussed with many other Lyme organizations, such as the Global Lyme Alliance and, and Lymedisease.org. And it's clear that women are treated differently when they have a Lyme disease diagnosis. Women seem to get chronically ill at a greater rate than men. and. So my question to you and why I've been so excited to interview you is, do you believe that because of organizational failure in the medical community, that rather than getting the help that you were seeking, you were actually hurt more than even if you didn't seek the treatment that you initially sought?
2: That's an accurate statement from my perspective. I'll tell you one more thing. There, I mean, there, there was the systemic failure of the healthcare system. There was the gender bias dynamic for sure. Um there was another layer that is seldom talked about, which is something that um I learned on my own as well. Like I mentioned coming out of my marriage, coming out of my childhood, like I went on a journey of understanding narcissistic abuse and the dynamics of narcissistic abuse. Um, And and coming, I mean, after studying and getting myself out of that on my own, uh, also recognizing that it's so embedded in the culture, in the way that we do things, that it's almost unnoticeable that the the abuse is happening at the psychological level. I think there's a lot of that in there. One of the things, one of my epiphany moments was when I realized that the, the journey I was going through figuring out Lyme was almost parallel to the journey I went through figuring out that I was a victim of psychological abuse. Um, It was the same self-education process. It was the self-invalidation process. It was the same. Um, The lack of empathy was the moment when I realized, wait a minute, why aren't these doctors being able to step in my shoes knowing that this is a service type profession, knowing that they see sick patients all the time. um, Why aren't they able to relate to what I'm saying? And that was the moment when I started comparing the journeys and I was like, wait a minute, I think I'm dealing with the same phenomenon. I think I'm dealing with the signature mark of narcissism, which is lack of empathy and grandiosity And um, the ability to do things under the table because nobody's gonna catch them. And um, I started having a lot of similar, you know, triggered experiences as I came more and more aware that that was that's what I was coming out of.
0: So let's talk about that with this first doctor because one of the things that we've seen with the 160 podcast guests that we've interviewed before you is that doctors seem to be narcissistic and in many ways, doctors are rewarded for their narcissism. Now there's two pieces to that, right? Part of it is education where doctors are educated to be cowboys. And part of it is that patients reward doctors who are coming in and taking control and and telling them, telling patients that they're going to make them better. So let's talk about those pieces of this where you have an educational system that is rewarding and encouraging this type of a mindset. And then we have patients who are responding positively to this mindset and how that ultimately plays itself out the way it did in your case, where you were gaslit and you were actually hurt by this experience rather than helped.
2: Well, I mean, again, these are very complex scenarios. I think that not having, had let me take a step back, because not having had the preparation from my previous experience, I, I don't know where I would be today if I hadn't had the opportunity to relay back and start figuring out, wait a minute, this is familiar, this is happening. Is this that? Is that not? If I didn't have that sort of baseline and background, it would have been lethal almost. Um, I think that um, I I see that doctors and and I know we're focusing on the first doctor, but even throughout my engagement with most of the doctors
0: I saw. And Matt is going to take you through that, but I want to say focus on this with you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. This one doctor in particular. Yeah. He had like a, like a God given attitude. He was not, um, he was not open to somebody that came with her feet swollen. He was not open to somebody that sat there and say, I'm genuinely slowing down as days go by. And I don't know why. And his response to me were always, well, I don't know what you have. I don't know what category what category to put it on. I'm going to do what I can to figure, to put you in the hands of people that I myself, you're too much for me. I don't know how to relate with you. And I think that comes from an educational um, background of them, given the sort of power over your health which is the experience that I had, which is why I feel so um, slated at some point. And I have to come back and fight for my health and fight for my soul and my convictions and what I was feeling. But it became a a, a power struggle with them, because they feel that every time I came back into the office, especially with this doctor, that I was challenging his authority as opposed to you know, this is a desperate person really trying to find answers, and you're in the position to give her those answers, and you're not doing anything about it.
0: Okay, so now let's unwrap each of the pieces that we sort of talked about generally, right? Because I can tell you, I'm a 57-year-old white male lawyer, and I don't get treated well in the, in the doctor's office, so I can only imagine how difficult it is when, when Uh, when you were walking in. So let's first talk about gender and then we want to talk about uh, accent and we will talk about uh, nation of origin, right? So you now walk into a doctor's office as a woman. How How do you believe you were treated differently and worse and what impact did that have on your healing journey?
2: I think I was treated differently in the sense that I was not given the benefit of the doubt the the first immediate diagnosis for me was you're lying you're making this up um i don't understand you know what you're explaining this must be not true um i think that i was treated differently in the sense that everything was gender related in terms of potential diagnoses um you're premenopausical you're obese you are Um, you may have an emotional issue. Like there was not room for any other type of option to be contemplated from a health perspective. I think I was treated differently as an immigrant in the way in which I was given the time and attention. Um, Even when I walked into the office and I speak and my accent comes out, the doctor would ask me, so where's your accent from? Like there was an evident recognition that I was different. And I think connecting all those individual experiences helped me see in the end that what we were, de- what I was dealing with was beyond figuring out what my illness was. There was some, um, when he would document my history in the medical chart, everything about my demographics, my social status, my employment status, my motherhood status would, would take seven paragraphs of what he was writing before he would say she came to see me I didn't find anything I think she has PTSD there was nothing clinical there was nothing of the findings of my concerns from a health perspective everything was very much in the context of what I was who I looked like how is how I spoke my perceived status um and um that was a lot of the the, the, the issues that I had been pushing back on, on
0: his criteria on things. Now, Lindsay, many people who are suffering from Lyme disease are also suffering from PTSD. So even if you were suffering from PTSD, do you believe that he was failing to look at the genesis of the PTSD for some reason other than that it was and I'm not really sure how to say this, Uh, you know, like, why do you think, let me ask a question differently. Why do you think he was not willing to look at the genesis of the PTSD to determine what was causing you to have this fight or flight reaction rather than just saying that's what was wrong with you?
2: Well, I think part of it is education uh, from the doctor's end I think they're educated to a certain extent and I think that when things get emotional quote-unquote on the emotional spectrum they don't know how to navigate that they want to set the boundary and like no that's outside of my area of you know care. Um, I think there's a liability risk for them that plays a role in there. I'll see if you know, somebody like me, for example, that started pushing back and documenting things and, right, there's the potential that they may or may not have to explain beyond what's going on. I think as well that um, there, there is a lack of understanding. Let's say, you know, let's say that, yes, you have somebody that has anxiety disorder, PTSD and all these different complicated things. And then also Lyme disease, let's just put that scenario because I'm sure there is that. Even more so, the need for empathy and the need for care and the need for helping this person navigate such a complex experience needs to be an ethical responsibility. Because when it's not, it becomes emotional abuse. When you have somebody that is that fragile in their core being, and, you, and your response is, well, yeah, actually something is wrong with you and there's nothing I can do about it. You are failing not only the person, you're failing your profession, you're failing the system, you're failing the community. That person goes back home in an isolated environment who knows to what kind of familial situations And who do they go to? Who do they talk to? And I think there is a fine line between protecting my liability, protecting my area of care and adding to the flame of somebody that may not be in the best emotional state to deal with such a complex and complicated disease.
0: So Lindsay, you and I are going to come back and talk about some of these issues at the end of the podcast, but just so that we can tease our our, um, listeners with some information, can you share with us what the concentration of your study is now and what you are presenting your your doctoral thesis on?
2: I hope that I'm not going to scare your audience. (laughs) So the concentration of my dissertation is actually in narcissistic abuse in the workplace. Um, That is a theme in my life since the beginning of my years in my baby stage um, is something that is a phenomenon that only comes out through the experience of those who have gone through just like blind us. It's a phenomenon that is ingrained in the day-to-day on how we interact with each other and we don't even notice it. And it's a phenomenon that there are people that are a lot more experts and they have you know their psychologists and psychiatrists they have a lot more expertise than I do in the topic I'm just coming from the experience of the person that has gone through it and someone who wants to put the voice on others that may have gone through it too so we can create some kind of awareness into that reality um and that's kind of what I'm.
0: And just just to <laughs> just to, to finish this piece of the teaser, and you saw a lot of parallels during the course of yes. your medical journey to what you were experienced, what you had experienced, and what you are now developing your expertise in as part of your um, PhD dissertation.
2: Yes, yes, and um, like I said, without that foundation, for me personally, I don't know honestly where I have been today. Um, I I don't know that I would have had the aha moment that I had at the right time connecting those pieces and figuring out that it was not any different. Um, And that Lyme disease as a phenomenon from a patient's perspective is as invalidating, as um, debilitating, as isolating as anybody coming out of a narcissistic abusive relationship. And that the way in which you're treated by um, figures of authority or figures who may have the power to help you, but don't, um, come from the perspective of gaslighting you into you are the one who's wrong at your core. And I think that is the moment when I just saw the most damaging outcome of going through this journey through Lyme, which is yeah, the illness is bad, the symptoms suck, it's so complicated. There's not awareness, but the most dangerous part of it is walking around thinking that everything is in your head because that goes back to you being dehumanized and you being treated as if you are worthless and um it requires a lot of mental strength to come out of that self-talk
1: Lindsay, talk to us more now, despite all these obstacles and barriers you faced, how you finally got your Lyme disease diagnosis.
2: Uh, that was, um, God, really. <laughs> um, so I went to, so after this whole experience with this one doctor, I decided to take justice of my hands. And I'm like, okay, let's figure out. How many specialties do I have to consult with compartmentalizing the different symptoms I had. Um, so I went to see a rheumatologist first, and this person did like a whole, a full-blown blood panel of everything. Um, I came to see him a couple of visits later. He told me that I was obese, that I was premenopausal again, that I was I had an anxiety disorder. I'm like, whatever. I'm not gonna listen to that. I us go to the next doctor. So then I went to the EMT, then I went to an ophthalmologist because I, I was having a neurological symptoms that affected my eye and my ear and my limbs and my whole body was shutting down. And these ophthalmology ophthalmologies gave me the, the first factual clue that something was wrong physically. Um, he diagnosed me with uveitis and he said, something in your body is getting an immune reaction to you're fighting a virus, you're fighting something inside your your body. So with that information, I went to see a neurologist and that neurologist took the the information given by the rheumatologist and these other two doctors. And uh, he said that, he didn't see anything wrong with me and he did, um, an ENT, I think it's called where they pinch you with different things to get your nervous system checked. And he said, you're fine. And then he told me that he said, you know, I really think your problem is, um, psychological. I think you're dealing with a uh, conversion disorder. And I'm like, what is that? <laughs> so I come in, I come home and I start researching conversion disorder. What in the world? And am I dealing with? And that was a very difficult thing to digest. He actually he actually tried to convince me that I had to believe that was the problem. He, I walked away from his office with his statement telling me, this is what you have. You have to it's gonna be up to you to believe it or not. If you don't believe that you're going to get worse over time and you're gonna get paralyzed, And, um, if you believe it, you have to go to a psychiatrist and he handed me a prescription for antidepressants. Um, so that was, I didn't know what to do with any of that. So I came home again. Oh my gosh, this is just getting worse. Um, so out of the strength of, you know, faith only, I woke up the next day and I said, well, if I'm genuinely dealing with a mental health problem to that extreme, I need to go see someone that can help me because I'm a single mother, I have a teenager son, I have a, I have a career, I'm I'm becoming somebody who I am not. And if I have to, I have to be alive and I have to be healthy and um. I made an appointment with a psychiatrist and I sat in his office and I told him everything that I was experiencing. I said, you know, I don't think I'm crazy. I don't think what I'm experiencing is made up. I feel like by the day, my body is just shutting down. I'm dying a second every day. And I don't know how to make that evident. I don't know how to make that factual. I don't know how to make people listen to me. And so he requested all of my previous records from all of the other doctors. So I told him, I say, know, the only factual thing I have is this doctor who told me I have uveitis and that something is fighting my body from the inside. So he said, well, let's just stable the conversion disorder diagnosis that, that the psychiatrist told me, because I really I see people that are mentally ill every day and I don't think you are. Uh, let me request all your records. So he got everything that I have done, MRIs and everything. And so in one of my appointments, he said, you know, I I have your blood panel from your rheumatologist. Did you know you have Lyme? And I'm like, what? (laughs) What is Lyme (laughs) (laughs) now? And so um, that pretty much just, I just broke into pieces and I said, you know, I don't know what that is. I don't know what I have. I just know that. I need to be alive. I said, you know, I went through a very difficult experience with cardiac arrest, pulmonary embolism, two days in coma, had no prognosis to come out of that. And I did, and this cannot be the thing that's gonna take out my life completely. So, um, so he explained to me what it was. He said he could put me on antibiotics, but he was not an expert on that. So he didn't want to prescribe me anything. Um, and sent me home with a, a homework to research the disease and research what's going on with it. And then when I do that, I saw a picture of the rash when the, from the tick bite. And I went back, a, you know, all the way back to that first appointment when I told this doctor, look at the rash I have on my leg. And everything just came
1: together. So Lindsay, all of your classic Lyme symptoms were ignored. You even had a positive Lyme disease test from your blood work by your rheumatologist who failed to inform you about that. And it finally took a mental health professional seeking your other medical reports because they believed you finding out that you have Lyme disease.
2: Yeah. And putting me in the right direction. I mean, this was probably back in November when this whole final piece came like, Oh my gosh. Yes. I have that rash. Yes. I have the 250 symptoms that are in that symptom chart somewhere, Um, and I see second opinions from another neurologist who found that I had a white matter lesion and some other, and he was concerned about that, and he said, you know, the problem with Lyme is that it mimics 150 other diseases, and unless you work with somebody that understands that, you're going to be bounced around because nobody wants to take care of people that they don't know how to diagnose. And so that I continued just finding the next person. And if I found somebody that didn't listen, I will discard them and move to the next person. Lindsay, and,
1: um, I'm sorry to interrupt, Lindsay, but talk to us about, so you got your diagnosis, you went to an additional neurologist and you went to a whole bunch of additional doctors. It sounds like none of them really understood Lyme or how to properly treat you. So you were going from doctor to doctor to doctor. Did any of these doctors do anything to treat you for the Lyme disease? Nope.
2: No, my vet is the one that when I told him, I think I have Lyme disease, can you test my dog? Where is that coming from? And um, we talked about, you know, talking to a naturopath and that they get tested all the time, that they have vaccines. Like he's the one that opened my eyes to a lot of things. And then I went to see a naturopath. He put me in the direction of getting an IGNX da- test to confirm. And um, it was until January of this year that I finally got something formal and from a, from a lab that, I, that was, you know, accredited where I could go around and say this is
1: what I have. But, Lindsay, you also had a positive Lyme test from a, a local, probably traditional lab, like a LabCorp or a Quest, and countless doctors, after getting that test, ignored it and disregarded it and failed to treat you. What were they saying? Did they did they say that it was a false positive, or they just totally dismissing you altogether before they wouldn't even
2: they wouldn't even want to have the conversation? I even reached out. We have um, two big um, hospital systems where I live, and that's all they monopolize everything. And um, I went to both of their infectious diseases department. I mean, out of everything, I said, well, let me just go to the people that supposed to know this. And both of them denied me from seeing me, from even seeing me, because they did not trust any of my evidence-based lab work.
1: When you say that they denied you, they wouldn't even let you schedule an appointment to discuss Lyme because they felt that your lab work was not reliable, it sounds like.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, for whatever reason, the only, the only response I would get is we, no, we cannot see you. You don't fit in the category of what our doctors can help you with. I'm like, but you're an infectious disease department. How could you not? And they it,
1: just, yeah. Did they ever say anything like you can have a false positive or, you know, did they give ever give you a, a justification or a rationalization as to why they failed to help you or even see you in certain matters?
2: I did hear the false positive component a couple of times. What I experienced in my story is that they didn't even want to go there. Like there was a, a reluctancy to take a patient of my characteristics. They, there was not even the open door to say, okay, well, it may be a false positive, but let's check it out, let's figure it out. It was a, 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 a solid, we don't have room for
1: you here. So we, so, we, we often hear that many doctors will hear you have Lyme disease and say, I can't help you. You got to go with somebody else. But it sounds like you're saying that you had just everything stacked against you. You had your Lyme disease card, which nobody wants to deal with. Then you had your gender and then you had your eth- ethnicity and every doctor you saw was turning you away because they didn't want to be, they didn't want to deal with a complicated case like yours. It sounds like. Yep. Yeah. Now, Talk to us about this vet, because we have heard that vets are the most knowledgeable in regards to Lyme disease, but you're the first person who's told us that you've actually saw your vet to see if your dog had Lyme, and maybe that's how you got it as well. So how is that, it's just so bizarre, but how is that appointment different than all of your other appointments you had up until this vet visit with your, with your uh, vet, veterinarian? It,
2: I know it's it's bizarre and even funny now, but looking back, it was the second best appointment I had in this whole journey. <laughs> I mean, the level of information and knowledge and just normalcy of it. Like you sitting down with them and say, hey, I need you to get my dog checked because I i came with this diagnosis. Nobody knows how to help me, but I want to make sure my dog is not the conduit, right? Because I have my son and everything. And um." He just he just treated it in the most natural and normal and caring way. He educated me. He gave me websites. He told me, yeah, we get tested almost every month because um, we're exposed to you know horses and dogs and cats and you know animals that carry potential ticks in them. Um, he, he vaccinated my dog. I'm like, I'm going to get the vaccine too. Like, is that human proven? <laughs> um, but now that was, I, I should, I mean, after it, it, all the time that I wasted with human doctors,
1: I should have started
2: there. And, well,
1: who, but who would have thought to be fair? I mean, don't be hard on yourself for not visiting a vet before a human doctor, you know?
2: <laughs> but but those are the things, right? Like when you come to this down the road, of of figuring out. And and like I say, my approach was very intuitive. I just decided to go with my same strategy as before. I'm just going to talk to people who want to listen, whoever starts invalidating me, they're out of the equation immediately. And that's what took me to speak to this person in a more naive way. But we did. I mean, he genuinely consulted me. He asked me for my symptoms. He asked me for what had I done. He saw my blood work. Um, you know, he gave me resources. Um, he pretty much saw me as a colleague, like he being a human exposed to Lyme all the time for his profession. And uh, and genuinely, I I feel like you know I how did did I not click those dots, as as obvious as it could be, and went down this whole rabbit hole of self destruction with these medical doctors, where all I was internalizing in my head is how flawed am I how disgusting how um I'm an attention seeker I am coming into doctor's appointments just to tell you know just to as a hypochondriac almost and um at the end of the day I was not and it was thanks to him in a in a big way too
1: and thank God you didn't give up and accept any of those misdiagnoses because you maybe never would have gotten a proper diagnosis. You didn't keep fighting and going to doctor, to doctor, to doctor. And did your did your vet refer you to the naturopath that ran the hygienics testing to confirm your Lyme disease?
2: No, my psychiatrist did. Um, it was him and then a friend of mine as well. I spoke to him. I said, listen, I'm going through this. I think I need a whole different level of perspective here. And he had a friend who is an integrative doctor. And so, you know, my psychiatrist gave me the idea. My friend referred me to somebody he knew that he trusted. And uh, yeah, um, the moment I spoke with this, with this doctor, everything that I said, it was like, yep, 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 I think. And so he's the one that put me in the the direction of IGMX, And we talked about, you know, treatment pathways and all that. But that wasn't until January of this year. So it was a whole year of nothingness.
1: Did this naturopath test you for any co-infections as well? Or did, they, did you start out with just the Lyme testing at Agenix?
2: No, we did a, a whole, I mean, it was like a $2,000 thing Like he did. Because that's the other thing, right? Super expensive, super like crazy in the, in the term, in the sense of how much can you really take care of yourself and in, in getting the, the care that you need. Um, but he did a very comprehensive panel. Uh, he tested for co-infections. And um, I'm not, I don't have the language of these figured out yet completely, but in general terms, what came out of it is that um, it was just a Lyme disease diagnosis that I don't have co-infections apparently, and that it was relatively new, um, which makes sense considering that the year back when I first saw the tick bite. And because that was the other concern, like like the, sy- the symptoms became so exacerbating and so you know, they took over my life, that we were concerned that maybe I've been dealing with it for 10 years. And um, apparently through the the test, he could tell that it was somewhat new and that we could probably have a chance to reverse it.
1: So talk to us more now, you're finally seeing a naturopathic doctor about the financial burden that this is having on you, because you went to all these doctors, which probably were covered by insurance, but you still have to pay, I'm sure, a ton of Now you're going into the alternative medicine community, which is not covered by insurance. You're running lab work like Igenics, which is not covered by insurance. Now you're probably going to treat with things that are not covered by insurance. So how was the financial impact racking up for your treatment and your diagnostic journey at this point?
2: I, I, like anybody else, um, I have to prepare a different budget for this uh, that was not in my regular you know way of living and not only seeing the integrity doctors and the medicines but what like you have to do like i do infrared infrared and stuff and i do some other different therapies and um it's just coming out of pocket It's just you know i'm just planning for it in my case again for the grace of god i my life is not as complicated as the life of somebody who has a full established family of three, four children, husbands, you know, expenses and stuff It's just me and my son. And um, I live a very simple life, so I don't have like big, big, big commitments other than the regular. So I'm in a position where I can accommodate the extra expense. But it does take a toll of sacrificing on other things and prioritizing my health and my self-care over you know, things that may seem more mundane.
1: Lizzie, talk to us more about your faith. So what role did your faith and religion play in your diagnostic journey, that one-year window of being misdiagnosed and bounce around from doctor to doctor to doctor?
2: Um, well, my faith was a byproduct of all of these, I think. Um, I've always been, you know, I grew up Catholic in Venezuela is the predominant religion. So I have very, you know, rooted cultural Catholic, you know, foundations in the things I think and what I believe. But I've also diversified my perspective over time. And so I've embraced other ways of thinking when it comes to faith and resiliency and higher power and all that. Um, and I go back and forth in that. In my life, depending on where I am in life and my circumstances and all that. But through this journey, the only way, the only way, and I want to make that very emphasized, that I was able to push through is to have the ability to sit in my room by myself and say, God, I don't know what else to do. I'm in your hands and I need you to put me in front of the right right person. Um, I exhausted every humanly possible strategy and there's no doctorate degree that could help with these there's not money that could help with these other than having the the connection to say I already did everything I don't find the way out I remember one day Um, I went to different ER appointments again for my with my heart history like I was I got really concerned with my blood clots and everything and I would just end up in the ER in the middle of the night when I had like a flare-up in my heart pounding and all that and um, they would be like no there's nothing you're fine and so one day one Saturday I got up I spent the whole night like with all these symptoms and just not able to sleep And I get my car in the morning and drive straight to the ER again. And I go in there and there are like 17 patients waiting, like a five-hour waiting time. And I'm like, do I stay here or what do I do? And I got my car and I drove straight to church for the first time in a long time. And the church was closed. (laughs) And I sat in my car crying like, when are you going to open the door for me? <laughs> I need help. This is not easy. I don't know how to figure it out. I'm not smart enough. I don't know what questions to ask. And um, I don't know. I don't know that you can make it through if you don't, if you're not able to surrender and just let things work out and, and, and ask for help. And I did not find help anywhere else. And that's why I got to find your website. And that's how I got to find other resources. It was just a matter of asking, what is the next thing I need to know?
1: Lindsay, do you believe that that surrender that I'm a not I'm not in control and I'm going to do all I can and then put the rest in your faith helped you in your healing journey because it eliminated that burden of stress? your shoulders do you think that that had a big role in helping you find the proper doctors to get the right diagnosis and also to allow your body to be in a place to heal
2: i think it gave me the protection that i did not find elsewhere i think it, it in this in my experience this was a very isolated journey and then on top of a pandemic where we all were supposed to be at home There were not too many places where I could go to, and the places I did go to, all I found was, you're crazy, we don't want to hear what you have to say. And um, to me, being able to find my way into my faith and to find my way into surrendering to a bigger purpose gave me the self-protection and the self-parenting and the, the safe space that I did not find outside of myself.
1: So Lindsay, talk to us more now about, it's only been four months, but what treatment you were prescribed by this naturopathic doctor for your Lyme disease back in January?
2: So I have been on antibiotics. That was the first step. Um, I finally did find a regular family doctor that believes in Lyme. And uh, he immediately said, oh my gosh, you haven't been put on doxycycline yet. We're killing you. And I said, yeah, can you put me on it? So he, um, I, they, he I'm finishing the second month of that and I have one more month to go on antibiotics. And I am going to start a herbal treatment um, in the night, like at the beginning of May. And I have been also, I mean, I changed my entire self-care routine. Like I've been doing a lot of detox like self brushing and you know, Epsom salt baths. And like, I do that every night, almost. Um, I completely changed my diet. Like I cannot eat almost anything now because of sensitivities and intolerance. And so I'm eating a complete clean diet with, um, you know, no sugar, no carbs, no meats, uh, um, plant-based and trying to pick my foods to be, to have a detoxing quality. Um, I'm on glutathione and CBD oil, like a lot of the typical things I think that we put people through. And I'm taking, uh, well, my hair started to fall, so it's growing back, but I'm taking like BioSeal and things to help with my skin and my hair. And um, taking B12, zinc, vitamin C, um, some stuff for my liver, some other stuff for my immune system. Like I just have a routine of all kinds of things that I take during the day.
1: <laughs> Lindsay, when you say you're taking these things, are these all supplements or, you know, uh, herbals uh, and vitamins that you're taking for your immune system and for your liver and things like that?
2: It's a combination of things. So I'm taking supplements to enhance my, um, my GI system which was pretty messed up
1: what kind of what kind of supplements i'm sorry to interrupt what kind of supplements are you taking for your gi system
2: i i'm not I, i don't know the names of them by heart but i'm taking probiotics i'm taking some supplements to help with my liver function i'm taking supplements to help with my digestion um then i'm taking other supplements to boost my immune system like, you know, antioxidants and vitamin C and zinc and all those things. Um, and I'm taking things to help with my collagen and my hair and all of that, the restructuring of my, my skin and my hair and my, you know, my body in general. Um, and then I'm taking antibiotics to help kill the bacteria And then I'm doing all the external detoxing, like dry brushing and infrared sauna Um, and exon cell baths and all of that. Like there's a protocol that I go through every day by the hour where all that stuff kind of has a place in my routine.
1: And all of these things that you just described, are these all things that were advised to you by your family doctor and your naturopathic doctor? Are these things that you found on your own and are now implementing to get better?
2: A combination. I, I bought a few books. I actually have one here. Um, the Lyme Solution, which is a, a protocol that is mostly herbal. Um, so part of it is stuff I research. Part of it is things that I got through the naturopath. Uh, part of it, my... Family doctor who now does understand the issue has been guiding me on the medical side, and then I, I cross pollinate information with both of the practitioners I'm working with, so to make sure we're in alignment.
1: Talk to us more about your family doctor because most primary care physicians are not Lyme literate, and if they do prescribe antibiotics, it'll be for at most usually 21 days. So it sounds like your primary care physician is now treating you with three months of doxycycline. So. How did you fall, find this primary care physician that was Lyme-woke, I'll say, and now knows how to properly treat Lyme disease?
2: Well, that's another quote-unquote synchronicity situation because to everything, he his practice is like behind my house, and I never knew that for a year. And um, one day I'm driving to somewhere and I see the family, the medical practice there, and I just Google, like, who's this person? What does he does? And he's not a Lyme um, leader per se, like an LLMD, but he, his focus of practice is in chronic illnesses and end of day, end of life illnesses. And um, I just thought, well, if he focuses on that, there's a good chance that he at least will understand my struggle and all I need right now is empathy and somebody that can help me start putting this puzzle together. And I made an appointment just with the hope of that. And then when I came into his first appointment and I showed him all my records and we talked about Lyme, her, his first reaction was, have you been put on antibiotics yet? And I said, no. And he said, oh my gosh, Lindsay, we're killing you. And he immediately put me on it and he has been
1: just great. So I do want to share with our listeners that Rich and I met with you a few months ago when you first got diagnosed. And obviously now we're seeing you again on Zoom via video. And the transformation that we have observed is just unbelievable. It's like a completely different person. And to see you, and I know you said that you're not in remission and you're not fully healed, but to see you close to remission is just amazing. And it just is such a story of hope for our listeners. So I want to just end with this final question before I hand it back to Rich is, How would you assess your health now compared to where it was, let's say in December, right before you got diagnosed?
2: So my emotional health, it's finally where it needs to be. I have come to terms with the personal transformational journey that this means. Um, And now I feel like, yes, everything makes sense. And I was not crazy. So in that sense, I'm good. My physical health is still, I I would say I'm at a 50% back to my full self, but my full self is very dynamic and, you know, um, busy and energetic. Um, and so, but I, I mean, I got to a point where I couldn't even get out of bed. And right now I'm fully working, working on my dissertation. Like I'm going back to finishing the stuff that I put on pause. And um, just living as normal as a life as I can, considering that I still have, you know, certain symptoms in certain times during the day, and I have to take care of my energy and my health and my routines a little bit more consciously. I still am not able to like fully work out and exercise, but I have been. My inflammation points are coming down drastically. And the moment when I feel like my energy and my heart is functioning better, then I'm going to go back to exercising, just
0: like a normal
2: person would do.
0: So, Lindsay, I think this is an important time to pivot over to now your transformation. You know, every hero's journey, and you are clearly a hero, uh, includes uh, having an opportunity to strip off all of the challenging kinds of things we pick up as we you know, go through life and get to a point where we understand who we are and what our gifts are and what we can contribute. And um, it was very clear to me very early on in this conversation that um, that what's happening here is no coincidence that Lindsay has been getting ready for this for her entire life. And, and that her educational uh, journey and her health journey are coming together at the same time so that you are now offering a very different perspective on, um, on this Lyme disease experience. So talk to us about how this has been um, a um, beautiful spiritual experience for you. And I don't mean in the sense that you've spoken with, with Matt, but how it's transformed you and how it's given you sort of a very different meaning to your life and, 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 and a better understanding of your life now that you've gotten to this point?
2: Yeah, it's funny you, you framed the question that way. I had a conversation with my aunt in Venezuela about two weeks ago, and she's also seen me at my worst and at my best. And um, she told me similar words. She said, well, you gotta probably realize that this is just something you have to go through so that you can be helped for others coming behind you. And I think if I, if I were to wrap this up for myself and what I come closer to personally is the conviction that there's nothing more important in life than feeling seen and heard and validated as a human being. And that's a conviction of mine for my entire life. Like I've always fought for that for myself. The ability to lose your voice and find it back is a theme for me. And But in this particular episode of that, I feel strong about passing the baton to people that don't feel they have a voice and they don't feel like You know, I joined these Facebook groups and my trying to understand, and you see through Facebook people losing hope and people losing the ability to cope and people wanting to end their lives and people not finding a way out. And that to me is probably the most heartbreaking part of this whole journey because it really does, does take you. Believing in you and your voice and what you're feeling and being able to advocate and being able to discard anything that invalidates you and move to the next person that does validate you, that does want to listen, that want to give you a platform, that want to give you um, an opportunity to express patiently what you're going through. Because sometimes these stories and these experiences are so convoluted in your head that you don't know how to articulate them in a logical way where, you know, in, in a way that other people feel comfortable. And so to me, it has grounded my purpose, the purpose of my dissertation, which is to give people a voice, to be, to be believed in what you are going through. Um, and I just don't know that anything tops that off,
0: honestly. So let's talk about gaslighting in some more detail because one of the most painful parts of doing this podcast and interacting with folks on our other platforms is that there are some people who have been misdiagnosed for 20 or 30 years where they've just been suffering and they've been in terrible pain and they've been failed by the medical community for 30 years. And I don't think we fully appreciate what a large role gaslighting and the lack of validation plays in that extended diagnosis, diagnostic journey. But then to make it even worse, many people are diagnosed and then their treatment journey is a lengthy journey because of gaslighting and because of a lack of validation. And in many cases, the lack of validation causes uh, people to take on the identity of an ill person, which then makes it even more difficult for them to heal. So can you talk to us about how important it is for us as a society to begin to deal with this issue of of validation and gaslighting so that people do not have to suffer for 20 or 30 years without a diagnosis and for an even longer period of time, maybe a lifetime without getting the treatment they need to heal from this terrible disease?
2: Uh, no, I mean that is a that is a, a a great question, and gaslighting today is one of those buzzwords that is going mainstream that people don't realize the the, the, the lethal effects that it has on the individual. When we talk about gaslighting, we have to equate that to emotional abuse of the worst level. And we use it, we we are gaslit and we go through those experiences in such a routinely way that it goes diluted in what could be considered normal. I think that, unfortunately, because gaslighting is a, trait of narcissism. And narcissism is not a disorder that is broadly um, considered as an evidence-based, you know, mental illness. Um, We don't have the the victims, the recipients of that don't have the tangibility to speak truth to power about it. Um, But I do believe that when you are in a situation when your internal experience is different than what other people are trying to make you believe, you have to take a step and think and at least question Am I being gaslighted. Let me investigate what that is. Let me research and be informed so I, I have the tools to push back. I have the tools to articulate what is true to me. And I don't think that we grow up with those tools and those resources and that education. So we have to pursue it ourselves. Um, I think a lot of what this journey through line does to to, to an individual is to break down your spirit to the point where you cannot figure yourself out anymore. And that is what gaslighting does. And that's why I made the connection immediately that is the same effect of psychological abuse. Um, unfortunately, you know, narcissistic people don't pursue therapy and the people that are affected are the ones that go to therapy to be able to deal with the problem. And I don't know that that's gonna change anytime soon, but I do believe that we have the power. We take the power back by educating ourselves, understanding the dynamic, putting the language in place. So we have the right language, the right words, and they have the right strategies. To advocate for ourselves and to be able to remove anybody that is making us feel like we are uh, not worthy of attention and care
0: and, and uh validation. So, Lindsay, the main purpose of this podcast is to locate models that others can follow so that they can shortcut their treatment and diagnostic journeys. And we knew quite frankly from our first interview with you that you were potentially that type of person, but we didn't know what your outcome was going to be. And quite frankly, like Matt, your, your, your change or your transformation has been remarkable in a short period of time. And it's my belief, and I'll, and I'll pose this to you as, as, as my belief, that the reason your journey has been a relatively short one And you've had the success that you've had over a relatively short period of time is because you came into this experience with a toolbox from your personal and your educational experiences. So if I were to use you as a model for other people to follow, what are the tools in the toolbox that they would need so that they could first recognize when they're being gaslight, gas I guess, if that's the proper term, I'll need you to help me with that. And then secondly, what steps do you take when somebody is, is, is being gas-litten? Help me with it Gaslighted, I think it's said. All right, gaslighted. Help me with first giving me a framework that others can use to determine when they are being, is it gaslighted? And secondly, what you do, because we've seen other people who are successful and generally what they're doing is they're pivoting from, from uh, you know, treatment and therapy and treatment and therapy, and they're moving. And now with interviewing you, we understand why that's important and when that should be triggered and how you go about doing that. So give us a framework first for the, uh, the, 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 the emotional abuse that people are suffering and when they should know that they're being emotionally abused. And then secondly, what tools they need to protect themselves from that and get the care that they deserve.
2: Uh, I think, you know, one of the most um, easy indicators of you being gaslighted is when you are coming from the purpose of your experience with a situation In this case, you know, trying to explain to a doctor all the symptoms that you're having and you encounter the recipient and to treat you as if you are too sensitive or too exaggerated or too crazy or too this or too that. Like the moment that is the conversation, that is a huge red red flag that you're going to go into the dynamic. The moment that the second piece of it is when you are trying to genuinely find a way of empathy with the person that, or the doctor that we are trying to explain our symptoms to. And there is a wall, there is a, there is a silent treatment. There is, a, there is no way to be a rapport with that specialist or that operative figure um where you know the 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 reaction that that the person has is oh my gosh you know the responsibility falls on the victim of a sense right to think oh my gosh something is wrong with me I'm really exaggerating I should not be asking for help I should not be asking for anybody to care about me I think it's important to put things within context um when I went through that situation at the beginning, I get my, I got myself into a rabbit hole, even though understanding it intellectually. But then what helped me was to put things within context. You are going to a medical appointment. The responsibility of that doctor is to diagnose you. You are paying that doctor to provide you a service. The relationship should be I come here, I present my symptoms as data and the doctor should take that data and try to figure out how to connect the dots for you. That's what that relationship exists. In addition to that, what the professional field of medicine, there they, they, there is an oath within the professional medicine field that where they are swearing to be the best professional, the best caregiver um, to their patients, to provide for their health, to give them an opportunity to have a healthy life. When that is not being granted, there is a potential that there is gaslighting because they they are not recognizing your experience as a patient, and their agenda as a doctor or as a corporate doctor in a in a big healthcare facility, right? Plays a toll in how they inform your experience. Um I'll stop there because I think we may need to, but I feel like it's important for people to um, take an opportunity and and Read um, it and research what gaslighting means, how it plays out, and how typically the victim is the one that goes up, goes out of the experience, feeling like um, they're the ones to be blamed for what they are complaining about.
0: Now, I, I want you to put your um, your PhD hat on again, and I want to talk to you about gaslighting from the perspective, not just your interaction with your healthcare professionals, but with uh, intimate partners, with friends, with family, and, um, and with other people that you're going to come in contact with. Um, is gaslighting just limited to medical professionals or professionals, or are there other people in your life that will also serve the role of gaslighting you and emotionally abusing you when you're sick?
2: It's not any different than what I just described. I think that the, the 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 main thing about gaslighting and why it's emotionally abusive is because you get you are treated, you are dehumanized from your experience. You are treated as though what you are going through is not reality. You are being Um, Put into a a psychological motion that makes you question if your internal feelings, your experience, your values, your beliefs, uh, what you know is true for you doesn't count. And then you're given an alternative reality to buy into. And the alternative reality is typically you are flawed. You don't know what you're talking about. You, why are you trusting yourself in X, Y, Z situation? Um, I don't think that is unique to a particular group of people or a particular industry. I think you can experience the same thing in a, in a, in a marriage, which is kind of like my personal story. That's how I came to realize that I had lost my voice in my own home, that I was feeling like I was not the person I was supposed to be from being given that message over and over and over and over again and it, me showing evidence, no, but look, I have it here. Like from a line perspective, I have my blood work. It says that I have line, and you're told, no, that, well, that blood work is not true. Yeah, it is. I have it right here. And you continuously are told well, you have, your evidence, your reality, your experience. This is not true. That is where um, your mind goes into some sort of cognitive dissonance, you start removing yourself from your reality, buying into the reality of another. And that creates a conflict in in, in, in your brain and in your emotional
0: life. Okay, so let's talk about that. Do we gaslight like ourselves, meaning does our mind cause us to believe that what we're feeling is not real? And is that a part of this process as well?
2: I think so. I I have not belonged in a big line community, to put it in that context. And in general, I think that there is a tendency to go with the majority vote. There is a tendency to say, well, if you're the only one voicing this out and voicing this experience out and nobody's really believing it and there are a lot of people who don't believe it, then you are certainly the one who is flawed and you are the one who is attention seeking and you are the one who's overreacting and oversensitive. I think the rule rule of thumb in general in society is that the victim is considered um, an inconvenience. And we tend to go to the victimator who is usually someone in a position of certain power, whether it is social power, you know, professional power. And so to really stick out your neck for someone who is in a victim situation takes someone of a lot of courage and a lot of understanding of the dynamic, which is not an evident
0: dynamic. So when I'm asking the question a little bit differently, we've had some people who have talked about coming up in this sort of like, they, it's called the cowboy up culture, where, you know, you, you're, you're taught to believe that you got to tough it through, you got to fight through it, you have to grit through it, right? And then when they get sick, their mind is telling them, you're okay, there's nothing wrong with you, fight through it, cowboy up, get through it, when they're really sick. So I'm, I'm, I'm asking you a different question, not about how you feel relative to the way other people are reacting to you, which I wanna to get to, but just in your own head, not believing you're really physically sick because of your culture or because of things you've picked up through society or the way you've been raised. Um, is that something that you've experienced?
2: In the sense that I, that I have doubt myself in my reality, yes. Well that is the, that is the damaging effect of being emotionally abused through gaslighting and those type of tactics. Right.
0: So let's pause there, right? So we begin with our own doubts, right? Our mind is telling our our cognitive brain maybe there's nothing wrong with me. Right? Maybe that maybe maybe you know you're okay. And then we have a doctor telling us we're okay. Right. And telling us that we're not really feeling what we're feeling. And we have intimate partners telling us that we're okay. And we have friends telling us that we're okay. And this sort of whole thing just sort of builds up together to the point where you you, you do not believe any longer that you're sick when in fact you're really sick.
2: And I don't think it starts with self-doubt. I think it starts like every other situation, you recognize that something is just not right. You recognize that your relationship with your spouse is not fully healthy. You recognize that, you know, you have an experience you're presenting to this doctor and this doctor is not corresponding to your concern, at least at a minimum with curiosity, right? I think that you start from your truth always. And in that journey, it's more common to find people that will try to overrule your experience and that's when the self-doubt kicks in that's when you start like when you hear it so many times like in my case i heard it from doctor to doctor to doctor to doctor and they talk to each other and they read each other's notes and they feed into each other's biases and every every door that i knocked gave me the same alternate reality when internally I knew something was not, was not right. Something was not connecting. Something was not letting me live my life in the way that I have always done it. And then I start, then, then you start going down the rabbit hole of, oh my gosh, so many people are telling me X, Y, and Z. It must be true. And my, when I will go to my friends, for example, and I have a couple of friends that I'm very close to and I will go again like, oh my gosh, I feel sick. I have all these, my heart is pounding. And they will be like, but did you go to the doctor? And I say, yes. And what did they tell you? Why well, they told me that is anxiety. Well, it must be anxiety. Have you considered that? Are you taking it? Like it starts, the, the, the reality that comes from the authority figure becomes overriding the reality of the quote unquote victim
0: or the person in a, in a vulnerable position. So now let's look at, lyme disease in particular and why gaslighting is so dangerous in the lyme arena the first reason it's so dangerous in the lyme arena is we have very poor diagnostic testing just to determine whether or not you have lyme disease to begin with secondly it's really dangerous because we have no test to determine whether or not the treatment we're receiving is working right the only way that a doctor will know whether or not the treatment that's suggested is succeeding is by getting feedback from the patient. But if the patient is being gaslighted and the patient doesn't believe that they have the capacity to give this feedback to the doctor, we have a loop that makes it impossible for you to get better.
2: Well, the patient goes back home potentially to an unsupported family, right? The, The patient's ecosystem is not just the doctor. The patient's ecosystem can be very complex. They can go back to an abusive relationship at home. They can go back to an abusive family, you know,
0: dynamic at home. But I I agree with that. But let's say before we get there, I want to say with this point with a doctor, right? Because the only way that a doctor can properly pivot from one treatment framework to another treatment framework is to know whether it's working. But the only way that the doctor in the Lyme arena can know whether it's working is if they're getting feedback from the patient who has to be able to tell the doctor whether it's working or not but if the patient is being gaslighted and can't rely on their own belief that that they know what they feel then they can't give the feedback they can and and
2: yeah i i relate to that and sorry i went on a tangent there i just looked at it in a a more complex you know but you are. i want to go there
0: please lindsay i want to go there but i just want to see on on this one point first
2: yeah 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 I do remember being in situations where I didn't want to go to the doctor anymore because I didn't have any other version of my story. And I was tired of going to doctors and sitting there when they asked me, so what are your symptoms? And I would genuinely, my voice would not come out of my mouth. I, did, I could not articulate the symptoms in an organized way, in a way that was, in my view, credible. And I would just shut down and I would just cry. And I would say, I don't know how to explain it. I just know it's overwhelming. I don't know where to start.
0: So, of course, then the doctor couldn't offer you alternative treatments because the doctor couldn't evaluate whether or not what you were already receiving was working. Now let's take the more the, the larger picture that you were going to a moment ago. Now we have a larger dynamic where your support system is not validating you either talk about that and how that impacts your ability to heal
2: yeah I mean it's a it's a vicious cycle right you get cornered by your environment you get cornered by your doctors like we just spoke about you don't know how to articulate your reality there you get back home and you're considered lazy and you don't want to get out of bed and you there's not an understanding that you genuinely physically cannot get out of that i remember my son seeing me going through all of these and at some point he said the problem is that every you're sick every day now right in his innocence that, that's what they see and so you there you are oh my gosh again i'm so unworthy and such a loser and um oh it, it gaslights you in general You it continues to validate the external story as opposed to what you're going through.
0: So now let's bring that back to the, the situation with the doctor, because one of the things that we often do with family members who are sick is we bring another family member with us to go to the doctor to help to articulate our situation. But in the Lyme arena, where we're being gaslit by or gaslighted, I keep butchering the, the grammar here on that term, okay. um, we, have, we have family members who now aren't coming in and saying to the doctor, by the way, doctor. Lindsay can't really articulate her, her feelings right now because she's not really feeling well, but I'm observing A, B, and C. But the problem is when our family members are, are, are gaslighting us, they're not contributing to the information or the data that the doctor should be able to rightfully consider to help us get better.
2: No. And it's, I mean, it's just a huge, you know, uninformed situation just in general. Right. I don't think Which is why, which I go back to the individual, like we have to educate ourselves. We have to find a language. We have to form our understanding of the problem because it's not a life skill that we're taught. It's not something that you hear about growing up, right? So I feel like when you, when your family members are trying to give you what they can to support you and it's not and it's reinforcing the vicious cycle is coming from a place of ignorance as well which is why it you know unfortunately goes back to the person going through the situation to form ourselves into understanding the complexity um i don't think you know i i don't know that at least from a from a family structure standpoint there is um maliciousness around it although there are narcissistic families that are very toxic naturally but I think beyond that there is a lot of disinformation ignorance you know ignorance that is just embedded in our society Um, that needs to be fought back that needs to be you know put into place in order for the person going through the situation to be able to be an individual advocate to be able to push back, to be able to find the right resources.
0: So let's bring this full circle. If God forbid your son um, came into this room that you're sitting in right after the podcast and showed you that he was being bitten by a tick, what would you recommend that he do so that he would not have to go on a terrible Lyme disease journey?
2: Well, with what I know today, he, you know, I've I've obviously educated him now because I said, you know, you have a, a Lyme um, mother, <laughs> so I need you to support me where I am, and um, we've had conversations, so obviously, if, if you were to tell me that that's the situation, I would immediately uh, figure out if the teak, you know, can be located, be able to take it to the doctor to be analyzed, and, um, and immediately go to the doctors that I now know exist, which I did not know before, Um, so that he could be put on on antibiotics as soon as possible until we wait for a diagnosis of the actual peak and then figure out a course of action. But I wouldn't wait one second. But now I have information. Now I know what questions to ask. And now I know which doctors are worthy of that particular, you know, engagement and which ones are not. And, And I would definitely advocate for him no matter what.
0: Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Lindsay Ruiz. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Lindsay Ruiz and her tick disease journey, please visit our Instagram page at lruiz1977. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a tick by blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single review we get. Thank you for listening.